Value Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. The worst thing that regulators can do is actually demand that the innovation either slow down or adapt itself to regulatory convenience. That's a mistake. Regulators must understand that innovation is going to evolve because of its need to solve real world problems and consumer problems and business problems. The regulation of the huge finance industry in the United States is at an inflection point. Just as regulators have put in place the infrastructure to strengthen financial markets from the 2008 crisis, cryptocurrencies, stable coins, digital payments, lending marketplaces, financial technology, and even non-fungible assets that exist in virtual realities present new challenges never seen before. Regulating these innovations using laws from the 1930s, 1970s, and even the 2000s are clearly becoming untenable. On 1st November, the U.S. Presidential Working Group on Financial Markets, joined by the Office of Controller of Currency, OCC, and the FDIC, issued a report on stable coins to have them regulated as depository institutions. At about the same time, Federal Reserve Bank Chairman Jeremy Powell came out to say that the Fed will issue its own paper on a central bank digital currency, or CBDC, soon as a response to the many similar initiatives taking place around the world today. The Securities Exchange Commission, SEC, brought charges of unregistered securities against blockchain credit partners and Polonix. It also warned the largest crypto trading platform in the US, Coinbase, against launching a new lending product. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants the SEC to regulate fees, protect investors, and she has been lobbying the various regulators to promote financial inclusion. The questions to be asked are fast and furious. What kind of an asset is a crypto? What laws need to be changed or introduced to regulate digital assets? Should cryptos be traded on regulated exchanges now that the token itself is a marketplace that eschews the need for the exchange as we know it to be today? Will the U.S. government protect the traditional banks? Should the U.S. eventually create its own digital currency? Chris Giancarlo is at the forefront of influencing financial legislation in the U.S. today. He was a former markets infrastructure man, then a regulator. Until recently, he was the chairman of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC. He has widespread respect from both sides of the aisle over two presidencies. During his time as chair of CFTC, he pioneered the world's first regulated market for Bitcoin derivatives. He is also the founder of the Digital Dollar Initiative, a proposal that there should be a US dollar digital currency that is global, but one that preserves all of the values enshrined in the US Constitution. Most recently, Chris is the author of Crypto Dad, The Fight for the Future of Money, a book that captures all of these ideas and tells them as he sees them to be. Chris Giancarlo, thank you very, very much for spending time with me this morning. I'm excited to be able to speak to you. And I'm actually very honored to be able to speak to someone who is at the forefront of influencing public policy and legislation in the future of finance, not just cryptocurrency in the US. And it's thank you very much for speaking with me from San Francisco. Is that where you are? 
that's exactly where I am, Emmanuel. And, and it's such a pleasure to speak to you. It's Friday evening here. I know it's a Saturday morning where you are. And it's great to have this conversation across the Pacific Ocean. It's pretty remarkable how the technology has enabled us to have this conversation in real time, face to face, but a continent apart. I've heard so much about what you've done in not just in the, you know, in, in recent times, but over time. I feel like I have the honor of speaking uh, with someone who influences legislation in the U.S. and by proxy, the rest of the world. So this conversation is going to be broad in one sense, right up to the point of being geopolitical, uh, at the same time structured uh, on market, on the technology of cryptocurrency. You know, the, the thing that struck me when I was reading your book is the way in which you described or you weaved in uh, your own professional career. So what I did was I went back and looked at uh, what you've done uh, in the past, you were from 2001 to 2014 with GFI Group. You know, it's a market infrastructure technology company. From that origins to where you are today, I mean, the world has changed uh, dramatically. If I were to ask you the essence uh, of, you know, how you see the world, markets infrastructure and commodities market, uh, which is actually an amazing primer for what Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrencies are today. So I'm going to be asking you a few conceptual questions, okay? Uh, but yes. draw from your personal experience, technology, infrastructure, and markets. How's that evolved over time? Emmanuel, I'm one of those people who believe that markets and trading is innate to the human condition. Humans have been trading and, and participating in marketplaces since the dawn of time. And it's something that is, is just built into our DNA. We intuitively buy and sell as, as a means means of, of, of getting on with each other, a, a means of civilization. And uh, for me, markets are something that, are, that reflect a culture. Um, and they also reflect the state of technological advancement. And when I was on Wall Street um, in the early 2000s, I was helping to build some of the world's private networks for trading sophisticated financial products in over-the-counter markets in, in the world's major financial cities, including many of the cities in Asia that you know so well from Singapore to, to Tokyo and to Beijing and here across the United States. And we introduced some of the first electronic trading systems in these markets. We were part of the evolution away from human intermediation to increasingly electronic intermediation of transactions. It was a very important time in the market, but it also enabled me to see some of the shortcomings in that market, some of the areas that needed improvement. A lot of that trading sat on the balance sheets of some of the world's largest financial institutions and wasn't conducted through central clearing. And it became clear that a central clearing solution for many of these products would be an important market enhancement. And so would greater transparency. And I'll tell you a little story, a story that I recount in the book. In the days leading up, in September of 2008, in the days leading up to the collapse of Lehman Brothers, we started receiving calls from officials at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And I remember one particular call where the official introduced himself and said to me, uh, uh, do you recall meeting me at a cocktail reception at the Federal Reserve a few months ago? And I said, I did indeed. And he said, no, you told me what you guys do. Uh, can you remind me? And I explained to him that we actually operate the marketplaces on which most of the world's credit default swaps traded. 
And he said, right, that, that, that rings a bell. That's what I remember. Now, can you tell me what you're seeing in the markets? And I explained to him that what we were seeing was the deterioration of the credit quality of some of the most important financial service firms in the world, measured in the uh, a number of basis points that they were trading over treasuries, in short, meaning the declining credit quality. And he said, well, that's very interesting. I'd like you to come around to the, the bank, the Federal Reserve Bank, and explain that to us a little bit better. And I said, I would, but we have pandemonium going on right now in the markets. I'll try to come by later on this evening. And he said, oh, no, no, I'm way too busy. Maybe next month or the month after that, we can get together. And I said to him, sure, by then we may have plenty of time because things are deteriorating by the hour. These banks may be gone by then. And it struck me that regulators had no better way of assessing the credit quality of some of the world's largest financial institutions than to call people like me saying, what, what is it you do again? And can you explain to me what you're seeing in the market? And so I became a fan of global efforts and in the United States under the Dodd-Frank Act to introduce greater transparency into regulatory transparency, the ability of regulators to understand the trading conditions in the market. And I became a supporter of what became Title VII of the Dodd-Frank Act, which were the swaps reform provisions. And that's what led to President Obama asking me to join the Commodity Futures Trading Commission as a commissioner. Let's take it from exactly where you've described it, 2008, financial markets infrastructure. And so what you're saying is that, you know, um, even regulators were wrapping their minds around the importance of financial markets infrastructure. Um, and that is partly technology and partly markets, right? So now uh, in 2008, all of the thinking was about bringing all forms of assets, including OTCs, uh, onto regulated markets. Uh, and today we are looking at the disintegration of that, of that you know, platform, that, that infrastructure as we know it, or uh, all the work that has been put into building that. Today on a pancake swap, you, you actually have a market, um, you know, and, and, and that's totally decentralized and so on. So you know, this conversation, if we don't uh, moderate it well, it can, it's a huge conversation, right? But uh, let's, uh, let me take, uh, uh, you know, your perspective on how things have evolved over time and where is it yes. today? There's always a dynamic between technology moving fast and regulators needing to catch up. It, it, it seems always to be the case. Now, sometimes regulators, and this, this is something that I observe Europeans often do, regulators attempt to get in front of technology um, and, and then lay down certain um, rules and regulations and then require that the innovation um, uh, meet those rules and regulations. In the United States, we have a much more of a responsive regulatory approach. That is the innovation goes further and then the regulators catch up. But either way you do it, it's still the same thing. And that is innovation moves rather fast and regulators have to catch up. During my time at the CFTC, it was a major impetus of mine to have regulators looking forward to try to anticipate where the innovation was going and to educate ourselves and to be in a better position to make a response to that innovation that was itself dynamic. The worst thing that regulators can do is actually demand that the innovation either slow down or adapt itself to regulatory convenience. That's a mistake. 
regulators must understand that innovation is going to evolve because of its need to solve real world problems and consumer problems and business problems. And what regulators need to do is try to anticipate the direction and keep pace with it and, and be unafraid to modernize our own regulatory procedures to anticipate that forward movement of innovation. And if we do it well, actually benefit ourselves as regulators from enhanced capabilities that the new innovation can bring. There you are speaking uh, more as a regulator to a regulator. Yes. I mean, that's my, my sense of it. When you try to compare the Europeans with America, I'm in Beijing right now. And here we have three very and a huge uh, different universes. Uh, the US is uh, very market driven. Um, it's private sector led. Uh, Europe has become highly regulated because it's more government than private sector. And then you have China, which has got the dynamics of both, um, a very uh, assertive uh, you know, regulatory regime. And then you have the private sector, which had gone off on a tangent or maybe gone off uh, with an energy of its own, and, and now it's being uh, reined in. You've got three different universes, three different realities, yes. uh, you know, uh, and the U.S. is only just coming in. And, and one of the reasons for why I'm excited about this conversation is uh, the, the rest of the world had been looking at the U.S. and seeing how, um, you know, behind um, a lot of the infrastructure, technology infrastructure in finance uh, had been. And now with people like yourself, uh, it's trying to take the lead. It's, it's trying to re redefine um, you know, its role. Now in all of these, in these three realities, I wanna throw in a small element in here, the desire to protect the institution. How strong is that um, in the US regulatory um, culture? Uh, I think it was a few years ago, Larry Summers mentioned that, you know, with all the innovations taking place in finance, we got to protect the banks. We've got to keep them, um, you know, um, functioning. Uh, we, we need these institutions to be the harness of the technology to still capture the profits of, uh, of the industry and so on. What if the future is a disintegration of the institution uh, and the empowering of the individual? How will a country like the U.S., um, curate that process. Poor Larry Summers. He's so wedded to the world that he knew and grew up in. It's hard for him to envision a different world. So let me slip in there by saying that he's so Singaporean. <laughs> anyway, keep going. <laughs> a remarkable world grew up in the post-World War II uh, generation of, of remarkable institutions like the Federal Reserve, like the big global banks, like you know, great um, uh, clearinghouses and exchanges, and and they've played an important role. Um, and institutions like the U.S. dollar as a as a global reserve currency, and and they've played remarkably important prominent uh, roles in in the in the financial system in the world that we know today. And yet, what people like Larry Summers I think don't realize is that there's a new generation entering into the global economy that have lost faith in those institutions. They've lost faith in the institutions that in their eyes brought us the financial crisis. They've 
lost faith in those institutions and those conventions that seem to be resistant to change, that seem to be self-preserving uh, to the expense of innovation. And uh, a, lot, a lot of what those institutions do is become the arbiter of truth in an account-based world. They, they're the verifiers of identity. They're the verifiers of account sufficiency. They're, they're the, the conveyors of, of value from one account to the other account upon instructions from um, uh, um, uh, instruction-based uh, instruction organizations like SWIFT and others. And yet this new generation um, is looking for truth in other forms, looking for truth in the form of consensus-based algorithms as laid out by Satoshi Nakamoto in his famous white paper in 2008. And a generation that embraces Bitcoin because it, it doesn't rely on large uh, venerable institutions to verify who has ownership, but uses a consensus mechanism in the same way that Wikipedia in the early stage of the internet relies on a consensus mechanism. And so the reason why I say poor Larry Summers is because he's just not realizing, he, you know, it, when I grew up in the 1970s, we, there was something that was called the generation gap. And it was it was a gap between a, a youth, a, gen, a youth generation that had lost faith in their parents' generations, ideas about civil rights and the Vietnam War and other social conflicts. Well, today there is as big of a generation gap as there was then. But now the generation gap is over is over the, the validity of, of venerable institutions and their ability to validate truth as opposed to a more of a decentralized truth mechanism. Decentralized finance, or what's known as DeFi, is a direct rebuke to the institutions of the post-war generation, the very institutions that Larry Summers believes we need to protect at all costs. I think. Um, his his thinking is right for 30 years ago, but what he's missing is there's a new generation that reject that thinking out of hand. And, you know, time is like a conveyor belt. Uh, Larry Summers' generation may be in charge today, but they won't be in charge 10 years from now. There's a new generation coming and they have very different ideas about the importance or the lack of importance of those venerable institutions that Larry would like to protect against at, at all costs. Just based on what you've just said, what is the regulatory mandate today as a result? I just want to take it from how you've described it. It's changing. During my time in office, I intended our regulatory response to innovation to be a dynamic one, one that was open, that one that was focused on core principles of public policy, but not on the physical processes and the state of the art of those physical processes. I recognize the state of the art of a lot of our rules and regulations would soon be outdated. So I, I tended to look at um, the, the regulatory response as one that was dynamic and that looked to innovate alongside the innovation. That response now is, is being exited out the door uh, by the Biden administration that has taken, I, I think, a, a much less dynamic, a much more static response that says, our regulations are immovable, even in their current form, and innovation needs to measure up to our current state of the art of regulations, and there's no need for any innovation in regulation. And I think that's disappointing. I'm quite frankly quite disappointed with that regulatory response. 
And I don't think it will last. First of all, it will not stop the innovation. It will, it will be run over by the innovation. A static uh, uh, regulatory response in a dynamic world is just not going to serve for very long. So I, I think this is, uh, to use a phrase that's in vogue in Washington these days, I think the current regulatory response, response is transitory. And I think that the innovation will force regulators in the United States ultimately to have to have a much more dynamic response to this innovation and a less wooden one. For the rest of us looking back into the US, what we see uh, is a very dysfunctional uh, policy formulation process. Um, firstly, multiple regulators. Secondly, the whole congre congressional process. Um, and in fact, it is to some extent the dysfunctionality that creates the opportunity for the markets to keep moving, uh, for innovations to take place while the regulators sort of formulate uh, their thinking. Well, Emmanuel, I, I might disagree with you if I could, and just for the, for the enjoyment of our audience, uh, I might disagree with you on the multiplicity of regulators as being a, a, a handicap. I actually think it's an attribute. Because I believe that that competition amongst regulators is actually a healthy thing. I, I think that if the SEC and the CFTC were merged, you'd have much less dynamic regulator response. The 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 yeah, I think it's in a lot of times the competition between the two agencies that spurs each other on to to more innovative approaches. And so that's one area where I actually think the U.S. approach is positive. But that doesn't mean it's positive in every instance. Sometimes they get it wrong, but I'd rather to have that 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 healthy competition than a monolithic um, silo regulatory response that often uh, results in what uh, the journalist Julian Tett calls a silo effect, where everybody thinks the same way. And I think competition amongst regulators in a, in one domestic environment is a good thing. I welcome that remark. Uh because I'm also very familiar with highly monolithic regulators and the fact that society does not even question uh, the regulators. They, they actually assume that the regulators know what they're doing. Uh, so I absolutely welcome the remark and the faith in the US system because uh, it does look dysfunctional. Uh, it, the process is much slower and, and maybe more deliberate, but um, you know it works when it needs to work. So yes, and indeed. it's made up of personalities like you. So <laughs> you know who who contribute your thinking and, and to the whole process. Speaking of personalities, we have Gary Gensler, uh, who was teaching you know cryptocurrency at MIT before he you know walked into the SEC, and then right uh, as soon as he walks in, he starts looking around for things to regulate. Uh, I'm, I'm running a little ahead of myself here because I wanted to talk about your own uh, regulatory experience because as uh, CFTC chairman, you oversaw the infrastructure, but you also saw, oversaw the markets. And actually for cryptocurrencies, uh, the formulation of a market and, and you were a pioneer in, in setting up the futures market for cryptos. Um, and that creates depth. Um, and perhaps contributes to you know, um, cryptos becoming more stable over time. Um, give me a sense of where you think uh, Gary Gensler is taking, a, taking as the SEC on um, regulating cryptos. And in that, tell me a little bit of what you think crypto by definition should be treated as. Is it a, 
you know, is it a commodity? Is it a, um, what kind of an asset is it? Where the SEC is today, I'd like to describe as the um, Empire Strikes Back segment of the trilogy. Uh, <laughs> if you follow my drift, I think the SEC right now is a, is a bit of the uh, crypto death star. Um, and it is looking to um, uh, really uh, clamp down hard on crypto innovation, which is unfortunate. It's being done with the argument that uh, investor protection must be above all things uh, when it comes to crypto. And yet I I'm not sure that is in our national interest. I think, I think investor protection should be an important component of a, of a broad uh, national interest that also includes uh, uh, making sure that our markets are well-functioning, deep and liquid, and set a pricing benchmark for the rest of the world, which is the mission of the CFTC. And I also think we have a national interest in innovation, in, um, in, in digital assets and digital money, in the same way we had a national interest in the first wave of the internet, the internet of information. And at that point, the national interest was clearly recognized to be one of do no harm. And that was expressed by both Congress and a very enlightened administration that of all people, Gary Gensler served in. That was the Clinton administration. And yet I do not see a do no harm regulatory response being put forward by the SEC right now. I see a, a, what I would call a much more uh, aggressive and a, a shut it down before it goes too far uh, approach. And I'm, I'm quite frankly disappointed. Now, I've got great respect for Gary Gensler uh, as an executive. We didn't overlap, but we know each other quite well. And during my time at the CFTC, I made sure that our lab CFTC kept him informed up at MIT of all of our of our work. And, and so I've got great respect for him, but I don't have respect for the SEC's current approach uh, to crypto. I think it is going to hold back and, and, and stifle innovation in the United States. And I think in a time of competing global responses to crypto, I think that's a disappointment. However, um, I don't think it will last. I think that there's resistance growing in Congress to this very aggressive response. And I think that the, the pendulum always shifts in, in, democratic, in democratic societies. And I think we're feeling the shifting tide already with some recent results in some of our by-elections. And I know that some, there's some very strong leaders in Congress that are very disappointed in the SEC's approach. And I think if, if you see a change in control of one of our houses of Congress, which is very likely next year, I think you'll see some very strong demands on the SEC to reverse course. Just based on exactly what you're saying, brings me back to this question. What is a crypto um, as an asset? Uh, what is your definition of, of crypto as an asset? I think the SEC all, you know, seems to be, you know, flipping between treating it as a uh, investment asset and, you know, as a token. Um, what do you see uh, crypto to be? What, what, how, what do you think yeah. it should be treated as? First of all, I refuse to be straitjacketed by the state of the art of 90-year-old statutes. In the case of the SEC, the 33 and 34 Act. In the case of the CFTC, the 1936 Commodities Exchange Act, uh, chairmen have a great deal of discretion as to how they apply those regulations. 
one approach, which I think is the SEC's current approach, is to apply them in a very wooden, very restrictive, very static uh, approach. Our approach at the CFTC was to approach them on much more of a principle basis to identify what was the public policy uh, that, the, that, the dra that the adopters of this legislation uh, called on upon us to do, and how do we adopt that public policy in a way that's not completely destructive to the innovation. And so um, my, my approach to digital assets is how do we bring appropriate levels of investor and market protections, obviously to, to crack down hard on fraud and manipulation and misconduct, while at the same time giving this innovation room to breathe. How do we, and the most important thing is, how do we, if we recognize the innovation is going to happen, as I believe technology does, you can't stop it, then how do we harness it in a way to, to improve our financial system? How do we make our financial system more inclusive, less expensive, with less latency, and with less rent-seeking conduct? How do we do that in a way to modernize venerable financial systems, but do it in a way that still rids the market of fraud and manipulation and misconduct? And so it, were I at the CFTC today, were I at the SEC today, my approach would be one where our regulatory response is dynamic, but yet principles-based. It furthers innovation, and yet it, it seeks to thwart fraud and manipulation. And, and that would be the approach that, that I would recommend to Gary Gensler or someday his successor at the, at the SEC. In the influence that you're trying to bring to that process, what exactly are you trying to get uh, the policy response to be? On the one hand, um, you know, you've, you were talking about free market, let the technology evolve and so on. And when we think about how the SEC has been conducting itself, you know, with or without Gary Gensler, um, it's been responding to each challenge as it comes out. Like, you know, it was ICOs a few years ago. It's now stable coin and stable coins is like, oh, it's not the technology, it's the governance structure in, in stable coin. So they, they're actually responding, um, you know, piecemeal uh, as it's being tabled in front of them. On the other hand, looking at some of the things you've done at, at CFTC, you took a a structured approach. You, you were guiding the CFTC to a, you know, to to you know, to a uh, through a process. Actually, should the regulatory response start with a uh, a basic belief uh, in where this is taking us uh, and uh, and and an acceptance of of the universe that it's going to create? Uh, you know, I I started this conversation by saying um, the whole idea of institutions are going to be disintegrating. Uh, is that something that regulators should uh, welcome? Uh, you know, in the case of SEC, it's basically when is something a security and when is it not? Manuel, um, in order to answer your question, I'm going to tell you a little story. From the beginning of human emergence on planet Earth until the middle of the last century, the only markets that humans created to manage risk were markets for the risk of changing prices in mostly agricultural and commodity products. Those, those, the, the way to hedge that risk was to trade futures products, to buy, uh, to, to, to agree on a future price of those commodity instruments. And that served very well to help allow uh, the production of food sources and minerals and energy products to, to ameliorate some of the, the changing in prices. But yet, 
for our global economy, we still had to rely on a commodity as a benchmark for all prices in foreign currency and, and changes, in the, and that was gold. The world remained on a gold standard, used that to calculate the value of one a currency to another. And then some visionaries, mostly based in Chicago, saw something much bigger than that. And that is the creation of financial futures that would allow humans to hedge the risk of floating exchange rates and floating interest rates. And it actually allowed the world to go off the gold standard. And it gave central bankers enormous new tools to individually uh, make changes in their economic response to different domestic conditions, and yet st still work within a global structure. And it was one of the key factors in, in the period known as globalization with global trade advancing to a level it had never seen before. Now, those visionaries were unafraid to create that new innovation. And they were so concerned about static regulatory responses that they went to Washington and said, please, we cannot have the SEC regulate this new innovation. There needs to be a new regulatory response and they were greeted with acceptance. And that was the beginning of the creation of the CFTC, whose mission was to further innovation, not to stymie innovation, to create deep and liquid markets to set the world price. And today, the world price for interest rates, the world prices for most commodities are still set in those Chicago markets overseen by the CFTC. Now, fast forward today, we have another new transformational technology, in this case, digital assets. And, but instead of a regulatory response that says, we need to further this innovation and we need a regulatory body that respects innovation, what we're getting instead is a regulatory response that says, all innovation must be for the convenience of regulators not for solving global problems as was done the first time. We're getting a much different regulatory response than was done back in the 1970s. And that's really a, a missed opportunity, I believe, here in the United States to create a regulatory response like we did to the last one that furthered the innovation and created enormous prosperity uh, for, for a generation or more. We are today in uncharted territory. And in some ways, the you know, the existing regulators are holding on to whatever they can to chart their way through. Uh, and there is no underlining or overriding guidance in terms of where this is taking us. Um, you know, and everyone is afraid. Regulators are afraid. Institutions are afraid. Whenever humans have been in uncharted territory, great navigators have emerged and history has treated them very well. You know, courage is unfortunately in short supply. With, which means that those few people with courage will be very well rewarded in history for being able to navigate those uncharted waters without fear and, and uncertainty and doubt. There was Christopher Columbus going westward, and there was Vasco da Gama who went eastward. And for a long time, it was Vasco da Gama who discovered the spice trade, and Christopher Columbus, you know, uh, Got probably nothing. died a very unhappy man, <laughs> you know, and... So, so the explorers, uh, they, they pay a price too. They do pay a price. This digital dollar thing, you're also a nationalist. You, you know, you, you, you're bringing in 
the future of the United States um, into the crypto world. Uh, you know, you're, you're thinking about uh, about that in a in a big way, and you initiated this thing called the digital dollar as a foundation. How much of that is a reaction to what China is doing? And uh, in terms of a digital currency, and when I look at the premises of the digital dollar that you're proposing, a lot of that is so liberal. You know, it, it's in a sense it's open-ended and it and it's designed to keep the primacy of the dollar in the global marketplace. So, talk to me about your crypto nationalism. I think that every major central bank in the world within a, a decade or so will adopt a central bank digital currency. And the reason for that is the attractiveness of central bank digital currency to central banks is overwhelming. Whether the reason is because of the unwillingness of central banks to allow private actors to have access to the data that's derived for from financial transactions by, by citizens. And that was certainly a driver for China, but it's also a driver in the West with the reaction of Facebook's announcement of their Libra project. The yeah. second reason why I think central banks around the world will adopt this is because of infrastructure modernization. We have a venerable financial structure in the West. And I think that as, as enlightened regulators recognize the shortcomings of that system, this technology provides a lot of opportunity to modernize that system, make it uh, a faster, more efficient, lower cost. But it also, and this is the third reason, because of financial inclusion, the ability to bring more people into our financial system. Right now, our financial system, because it's an account-based system, requires identity in every case. And yet, in a world of 8 billion people, a billion and a half of them do not have adequate identity and therefore excluded from the existing financial system. So that's a, another reason. Another uh, reason why central banks, I think, will adopt this is because of its ability to provide monetary policy precision precision tools for the for the uh, execution of monetary policy that you can't get with an analog system. The fifth reason why I think central banks will do this is because this a remarkable success of stable coins, the ability to move money around the globe uh, 24 seven, 365 days a year at low cost threatens the monopolies of wholesale money transmission that central banks have and of retail transmission that commercial banks have. Another reason for this is because of its ability to project uh, economic power internationally. And certainly China tends to use its digital yuan and its Belt and Road Initiative. And certainly Europe sees it as an opportunity to advance the euro as a reserve currency. Mark Carney has talked about a, a stablecoin based upon a basket of reserve currencies as an alternative to the dollar. And so the ability to, to have uh, uh, global influence is a, is a role. But the seventh reason that I cite in my book, and I think the most important reason, is the values that are associated with digital money. I think one of the reasons why the dollar has been the world's favored reserve currency, aside from its economic power, its stability, its role in international commerce, has been the values associated with the dollar, values of free enterprise, of financial markets that are free of government interference, and most importantly, of individual privacy, economic privacy. Economic privacy to me is as important a value as freedom of speech, of freedom of conscience. If we're not free to make economic decisions, then we're not free as citizens in a, in a global world. And the question for me, and the reason why the subtitle of my book is the fight for the future of money, is I think we're in a fight today for what values are we gonna be encoded in the digital money of the world. 
Will digital money be a tool of surveillance of economic activity by governments? Will governments be able to censor our use of money once they surveil our use of money? Or will digital money be a source of greater ability to have individual freedom, individual liberty, and most importantly, privacy in our economic affairs? Now, I'm not talking about uh, illicit conduct. Of course, there needs to be police powers to crack down on illicit uh, transactions. But for legal transactions, I believe that principles of democracy require that people have individual liberty in their economic transactions. But I don't know what values will prevail in the future of digital money. I do know that the future of all money is digital. It will be digital tokens, will be sovereign and non-sovereign instruments. What I don't know is what rights and values will be associated with it. And we see that same fight in digital information. You know, uh, uh, the Internet of Information freed us from the who owns its information, whether it be encyclopedia owners or otherwise. But it also provided big tech companies to be able to surveil our use of information. And the question is, when we go to digital money, will we have greater liberty or less liberty? And that's what the fight for the future of money is all about. So you're describing exactly the same central bank digital currency as China is but imbibing it with a whole different set of values, which you hope will dominate or will define uh, CBDCs. And I think this fight, as I say, for those values is taking place both in the West and in the East as well. I think China spends a lot of time talking about uh, what levels will receive surveillance and what which won't. And I think Chinese citizens have a voice in that. I think people around the world um, have a role to play in what values will be in the digital money of the future. What we cannot do, Emmanuel, is be silent and assume that the digital money of the future, whether it's operated by the, U the, the US Federal Reserve, uh, the Chinese Cent People's Bank of China, or Facebook is going to give us economic privacy if we're silent. The only way that those privacy principles are going to be there is if free peoples around the world speak up and insist that their privacy remain uh, sacred in the future of digital money. The way you're describing it, um, what if the definition of digital money ends up being something that neither the Chinese model nor the American model um, you know, defines it eventually? And today it's countries like El Salvador and Honduras who and are- Laos And Laos and Cambodia. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a tail that wags the dog. It comes back to the more structured economies and defines uh, the future. You know, the, the Chinese have discovered that, that there's unintended consequences in central bank digital currencies. Um, if it's so digital, it disintermediates the very banking system uh, on which is payments are, are run. And, and in your model, you made it very clear that the banks will still be the primary intermediators. There's a kind of a contradiction in there. You're, you're trying to safeguard the existing model, uh, and yet you're talking about the future and all of that. And that brings me back to the first question. What if crypto eventually disintegrates institutions as we know them to be today? Well, I think it will but there'll be new institutions on their backs. So there was a time in America where the largest retailer was a institution called Sears. And Sears is long gone now and Amazon has replaced it. Um, you know, there was a time where um, uh, Kodak played a role in most photography. 
and Snapchat has replaced it. Instagram has replaced it. People often talk about revolutions and yet economic uh, change is often evolutionary and, and a lot of times not as revolutionary as people think. I think there will be new institutions. In some cases, they may be um, uh, uh, evolutions of old well-known institutions. In some cases, old institutions may be entirely wiped out and new institutions may take their place. Whoever heard of some of the new stablecoin operators that are doing billions of dollars of business today? They very well could replace some, some older and venerable issuers of money. So I can't tell you which will be the institutions of the future. I can tell you there will be new institutions and unknown names, but money will nevertheless change and it will become, as I believe, digital, borderless, tokenized, decentralized. We are in a, a long social period of entropy, of decentralization. It's happening not just in economics and in money, but in many of our social conventions, social institutions. So we are in a period, you know, we were in a long period of, of, of building up of organizations uh, in the late 20th century, early 21st. But I think we're now in a reverse. You know, globalization is receding. Trade barriers are reappearing. Um, uh, markets are, we're seeing balkanization again. And I think in, in the area of institutions, global institutions are in for some, some period of breakdown. And I think that is where, that is the phase that humanity is in uh, right now. When you were chairman of uh, the CFTC, the whole orientation of regulation was to bring OTC transactions onto regulated exchange exchanges. And just based on everything you've just said now, what's the future of OTC? Are we going back to decentralized? I'm so glad you asked that because that's one of the great, I think, misperceptions of global swaps reform. In the United States, the reform of the swaps market that came out of the 2008 crisis is embodied in a portion of the Dodd-Frank Act called Title VII. And yet Title VII never requires that swaps transactions take place on electronic exchanges. It never imposes a central limit order book model on the swaps market. So to your point, although many people believe it's the case, swaps reform in the United States did not require that the OTC market come onto exchange. There's a reason why in every mature market, over-the-counter markets exist. That is for a portion of the market where liquidity is episodic and not constant, you need an over-the-counter portion. You know, if you walk into almost every old stock exchange building in the world, go to the corn exchange in London, right across the street from the London Stock Exchange, it's now a food court and it has shops all around. As you sit in that food court, look up and you see galleries all around. That's where the off-the-floor brokers took place. That's where the transactions that couldn't be processed in the central market took place because the order size was too large or the parties were too disparate to take place in a central order book market. Every marketplace in the world has an over-the-counter component for those trades that cannot take place in the central order book. And so wisely, the US Congress did not require that the OTC over-the-counter market move onto exchange because they realized it wouldn't work. What Dodd-Frank did do is require greater transparency, um, a central cl a clearing, and that the over-the-counter brokers 
be properly licensed to conduct that business. But it didn't require over-the-counter markets to be put on exchange. And thank goodness it didn't because it would have destroyed those markets. And today, all of that you know, off-market markets function in so many different forms. Uh, you know, you've got dark pools, you've got, you've got retail investors coagulating and becoming a force uh, by themselves. So um, it's a whole new dimension that from what you've described. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a regulated market now. The over-the-counter market is now regulated, but it's not on exchange. It's still over-the-counter. And I can, I can tell you as a student of this over a course of a lifetime, in every market, you will always have the, 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 the fungible commoditized end of the market, the highly fungible automated part, but you will always have an over-the-counter part where those trades that are either bespoke or where liquidity is not constant, where it's inconstant, need to take place in an over-the-counter element. And that will always exist, I believe, and it always, has always existed in the past. I think it'll always exist in the future. Talking about adventurers, uh, buccaneers, and people who are charting the future, you're one of them. And there's Cathie Wood, who says that the US GDP you know, can go to $40 trillion. How much of that is financial GDP? And how is that different from the real economy GDP uh, you know, that the whole world measures today? What is she talking about? What do you think she's talking about? And what is your version of a larger US GDP? That's a great point. I think of GDP is what is the aggregate value creation of an economy? And we have economist-based measures of GDP, and I think they undermeasure the entire value creation of an economy. And, and some of that is by design because they wish to measure certain things, industrial output, um, and they don't wish to measure other things perhaps. Uh, the ability of information to be virtually free and, and the knowledge economy that, that comes about for that. But it's a very hard to measure. It's something that's very hard to measure. So I'm, I'm not sure that our existing measurement tools and yardsticks for GDP have kept up uh, with innovation, have kept up with the full value creation of an economy. But that's how I think of GDP. And I actually think that Kathy Wood is right on this. I think that the productivity and, you know, the United States official sector may be a bit of a laggard to the exploration of the digital future of money, but its private sector is right on the cutting edge. I, I'm speaking to you, to you today from San Francisco. I spent the afternoon and evening yesterday with young entrepreneurs, people in their 20s, that are building some of the most exciting new innovations in, in, in value creation. And um, uh, there's nothing in our GDP statistics that measure their contribution to the U.S. and indeed the global economy, but it's there. There's a lot going on here that's not um, revealed by the relatively laggard response of our Washington regulators or in our official GDP statistics. But there's a lot of very cre enormous creative energy that's going on here in New York and in, in Chicago and elsewhere. Um, that's taking place today and, and around the world. Um, but the United States is, as I think, once again, um, innovating uh, in, this, in this new wave of the internet in a way that is very exciting. The main reason I wanted to have this chat with you today uh, was to get a sense of where U.S. regulation is heading and how it's responding to all of the innovations taking place today. 
what are you worrying about today? Uh, what's on your plate? What, what, are, what is a, a milestone that you've given yourself that you're looking for and you're in, trying to influence uh, that you hope that will make a big difference? I joked before that I think we're in the Empire Strikes Back phase of the trilogy. And I do think we're in a repressive regulatory phase here in the United States about this innovation. And I think a, a regulatory phase that's more concerned with preserving existing market structures and existing legacy processes and not seeing the potential for the innovation. But I think this phase will pass. And I'm quite optimistic for the medium to the long term. In fact, I'm extraordinarily optimistic. I think this new innovation has the ability to modernize a creaky old financial system, to, to bring more people to, to drive financial inclusion, to lower cost, to lower rent-seeking behavior in our financial system. So I'm very excited about it. I think some old and venerable names will be wiped out. I think the correspondent banking system is, is going to be really challenged by this innovation, but I don't think fractional banking will be challenged by it. And I think already you're seeing some venerable names like JP Morgan and others actually be very, very um, forward leaning in their approach to this. So overall, I'm not that worried. I, I don't think the mission should be to protect incumbents. The mission is to help the innovation along and those incumbents that get get the opportunity, see the opportunity will do just fine. So I'm very optimistic in, in the medium to long-term view. I'm very optimistic uh, that the United States will be a leader in this. Um, I, I do have some concerns in, in the very short term, but longer term, I'm very optimistic. Um, and I think this is a world today where, where innovation is not as concentrated in Silicon Valley as it once was. I think there's an enormous amount that's going on here, but there's an enormous amount that's going on in Austin, Texas. There's an enormous amount that's going on in Mexico and, and going on in Colombia and going on in Southeast Asia and that's going on in Europe. I think we have a lot of Silicon Valleys around the world today that are involved in innovation. I'm optimistic that the United States will be in the first peloton of innovators, but I don't think it will have the race all to itself as it did with the first wave of the of the internet. And, and believe it or not, as, as much as I am a, a proud American, I think that's a good thing, Emmanuel. I think the next this generation is much more international, uh, uh, much more free-spirited, and I think we're gonna see innovation come from many corners of the globe. And that, as a global citizen, I think that's good for all of us. I noticed that uh, the Winklevoss brothers wrote the uh, forward to your book. What's the relationship, what's the friendship with Winklevoss? Why well, did you get them to write the the so the Winklevoss brothers, uh, when you have a vision of the future, there's many steps along the way where, you're, uh, where you're, the scales fall off your eyes and your eyes are opened. And, and I talk in the book about a visit I, I received from the Winklevoss brothers in 2015, where um, uh, they were talking about Bitcoin and the need for sensible regulation. And, and they were one of those moments where my eyes opened wide and a light bulb went off. And we've remained in contact. And since I've left the CFTC, um, I've had the privilege of being in close contact with them and advising them on, on certain paths forward. And I've been a fan of their work. And so when I was finishing the first draft of my book and my publisher suggested um, uh, someone to write a, a compelling forward, uh, I thought, well, maybe not just someone, but some, two people. And, and I asked the Winklevoss brothers if together, uh, Cameron and Tyler would write the forward and they honored me by agreeing to do so. And it's, it's actually, I think a terrific forward 
and a very exciting one. And I'm very proud that it's that it's the lead into my book. It's such a readable book. And uh, Crypto Dad, why? I mean, it's also an interesting title. Like, you know, you didn't make it a pedantic title. So uh, Crypto Dad, uh, where did that come from? It's one of the fun stories in the book. You know, as I explained in the book, we had been approached by two large U.S. exchanges to launch a Bitcoin futures. And as we as a commission under my, my chairmanship spent time looking into this to make the decision to... Uh, to, to allow this to go forward, I received a lot of critical input from regulators around the world, from market participants here in the United States, telling me to stop this, to not allow Bitcoin futures to go forward. And at the end of the day, we decided to allow it to go forward. And not long after we did, I received a formal summons from the United States Senate requiring me to come and give testimony to justify why we had made the decision we had made. And I fully expected that to be a very bloody hearing that I would be criticized for our decision to go forward. And in preparing for it, I prepared a very lengthy summary of every step we had made, a 60 page review of all our decisions. And I submitted that the week before, but the night before the hearing, as I was getting ready, I thought, you know what, I'm not going to try to summarize that long submission. So the next morning when I was sitting in that wood paneled room in front of all these assembled senators, and it was time for me to give my opening remarks, I looked up at them and I said, senators, if you'll allow me, I want to speak to you for a minute, not as the chairman of a federal regulatory agency, but as a dad. And I explained to them that I had just spent a, a, a trip with my children and my nieces and nephews skiing. And every day after we skied, we would meet for dinner. And all these young people wanted to talk about was Bitcoin. It was Bitcoin all evening long. And it struck me, as I explained before, that there's truly a generation gap today amongst young people. They intuitively understand this innovation and they want to see it furthered. And so I said to those senators in that hearing room, as a father, as a dad, I think we owe it to this generation not to dismiss their interest with disdain and derision, but we should open ourselves to think about it and respond with a positive response, not a negative one. And just as I said those words that I want to talk to you as a dad, my my Twitter handle exploded. And I went from 1,000 Twitter followers to almost 50,000 Twitter followers in the next three days. And they started calling me all kinds of names, including Crypto Dad. And so the Crypto Dad title is not a title I gave myself. It's a title that the Twitterverse gave me for that testimony in front of that Senate Banking Committee. Chris, your book reads exactly as you speak right now. And uh, it's, it's stories like that that brings to life uh, what it is that we're actually dealing with. Uh, and I want to continue having this discussion with you at different points, uh, especially uh, when there are major developments in the regulatory framework in the US. It's, it's taking shape, it's still a work in progress, um, you know, and there's so many moving parts and the technology itself is evolving in a dramatic fashion. I'm excited about uh, blockchain talent uh, among young people uh, and the way in which they're creating interoperability, uh, you know, carrying all kinds of assets on cryptos. This whole space is amazing and, and, and the world is going to look very different, you know, in the next few years. 
And it's great listening to you and hearing it from you as a crypto dad. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.